Welcome, 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 welcome to Blues and World Report. Blues, 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 blues and World Report. I'll be interviewing all different kinds of artists whose work has been inspired and influenced by blues music. I hear so much talk about keeping the blues alive. Keeping the blues alive? No. no. I'm thinking the blues keeps us alive. Be careful how you and of course, we're going to get down to the real nitty-gritty with the greatest blues artists on the planet. Hello, and welcome to Blues and World Report. I'm your host, Matthew Scholar. This is my inaugural episode, and I'm really excited to launch this podcast. I'll be talking with blues artists and other types of artists inspired by the blues. We'll not only meet the stars of the show, but we'll meet the side men and women and folks behind the scenes who make it all possible. We'll be exploring through the lenses of the greatest living blues people what the blues is, what it represents, where it came from, and who and what it has influenced. We'll begin with one of my favorite blues singers, the amazing... Dietra Farr. This interview was recorded on February 24th, 2021. We make mention of blues great Paul Osher, who sadly passed away on April 18th, 2021. Both Dietra Farr and I would like to dedicate this interview to his memory. According to Living Blues magazine, Dietra is considered one of Chicago's top vocalists, fiery, energetic, and soul-stirring. She has over the years been nominated for Traditional Blues Female Artist of the Year by the W.C. Handy Awards, Female Blues Artist of the Year by the Living Blues Critics Award, the British Blues Connection Awards, Les Trophies France Blues Awards. In October 2015, Dietra was inducted into the Chicago Blues Hall of Fame as a legendary blues artist. In December 2016, the National Southern Soul Foundation gave Dietra the Most Popular Blues Artist Award. And on August 3rd, 2017, Dietra was awarded the Coco Taylor Queen of the Blues Award by the Just Blues Foundation's 17th Annual Music Awards. Dietra is also a published writer, poet, songwriter, and painter. A graduate of Columbia College, Bachelor of Arts in Journalism, Dietra has recorded many of her own compositions and has written articles for the Chicago Daily Defender, the Chicago Blues Annual, and the Italian blues magazine Il Blues. Currently, she has a column, Artist to Artist, in Living Blues magazine. Welcome, Dietra. How are you, darling? I'm doing well. I can't complain. Good, good. Mm-hmm. So things are going okay? You're getting along in this bizarre moment in history we're living through? Yes, I'm doing very well. And like most people, I think I've learned some things about myself. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. As one of my friends said, God has sent us to our room. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes. That is deep. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so profound, you know, and I'm like, you know, that's true. Yeah, I think on the other side of this, we're going to see some great things come out of people, mm-hmm. you know, create, create creatively. And, you know, I, I expect everybody to get kind of wild. You know, we're going to have the roaring 20s again <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> on mm-hmm. the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, we are not created to be alone no and we're being forced to be you know more alone 
And I, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of this. I am too. All right. So let's start at the beginning. What were some of your first uh, inspirations? Like what, when you were a kid, what was your first memories of music in the house and in the neighborhood? The Ed Sullivan Show, The Supremes. I, I was about six years old, I guess. And I saw The Supremes on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I was like, oh, my God. That's what I want to do. Mm. <laughs> and that 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 was vivid. The Sullivan show was vivid because every, my my family watched it religiously, and we got a chance to see all kinds of music, all right. kind of entertainers, comedians, what have you. Yeah. And on Sundays, we had the uh, my grandmother used to watch the Jubilee Showcase, which was gospel music. The witch. It was a show called Jubilee Showcase. Jubilee Showcase. Yes, it was a um, gospel music show, local, Chicago. And that's where I got to, you know, exposed to the gospel singers. Where in Chicago were you? I was in Inglewood, the south side of Chicago. You were also in proximity to one of the most historical churches in gospel music history. Can you talk about that? I had Lena McLean as my music teacher at Kenwood High School. And she's the niece of Thomas A. Dorsey, who is the uh, founder or the father of gospel music, as we know it. And she talked to us about her uncle. And, I, and she told me he was still, oh, he was an old man, but he was still conducting the choir at Pilgrim Baptist Church. And I thought, oh, cool. That's right near my house. So I, you know, at that time I was living on 26th Street. So I would walk from my dad's house to Pilgrim a few times mm. to, to watch it. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed, you know, once I did the history, you know, study, you know, what he was doing and some of the songs that he wrote, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. So did you, were you able to go in there and see, did you see them oh, live? Sure. I went, I went several, many times actually. Many times, wow. To watch him. I, I went to watch him. Wow. Because she talked about him, you know, and she was brought to Chicago as a little girl to keep him company after his wife died. And did you hear him singing? Did he sing at that no, time? No, I didn't hear him singing. I saw him conduct the choir. Right. In terms of like Mahalia Jackson, who sang at that church, um, Yes, with it's him. one of the churches. She she was um, the singer that he originally used to to uh, spread his music. Right, and that's amazing. You know, wow. She was on Jubilee. She was on Jubilee Showcase, and she was also on the Ed Sullivan Show. Right. So she and was. That had, huh. She was not at the church at that time. No. No. She, I don't know where she attended. She's still in Chicago. Mm -hmm. She was on 83rd in Indiana. That's where her house was. Okay. And my other grandmother lived just a few blocks away from her. And um, I used to always, when my grandma, I would spend the night with that grandma. This is my father's mom. When she would take me home, she always drive west to the Dan Ryan. And we would have to pass Mahalia's house. And I would be like, please come outside. Please come outside. Because <laughs> I wanted to lay eyes on her. You know, I'd never seen her before in person. 
Yeah. But she was always on the Ed Sullivan show. So this is in the late 60s, probably, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so she passed in 72. In, in, That's right. And Thomas Dorsey, he was not singing or playing piano? I don't remember him playing piano. He may have, but I, I don't remember it. Because he was a piano player, right? He was. Yes, he played with yeah. Ma Rainey. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting. He played blues. He was a blues man originally. Georgia Tom, right? That's Georgia. correct. Yeah. And he, you know, he brought that blues feeling to spirituals. And that is the gospel music that when you say the word gospel, that's what you're talking about. Is the, the blues element of the spirituals. And I used to get in trouble because when it was on the radio in Chicago, they always, always played gospel all day long. And I used to get in trouble because I'd be dancing. And my grandmother, <laughs> my maternal grandmother, she didn't, you stop dancing. You're not supposed to dance to oh, that wow. music. But, you, you know, that's what I wanted to do because it made me want to dance. Mm, but she mm, didn't mm. like that. So she was very strict. But a cousin of mine, older cousin, she kept, she had she had me to spend the night with her, and she belonged to a sanctified church. Lord have mercy. Now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had the tambourines going. I mean, it was. I was like, to see, this is what I like. <laughs> you know, Beautiful. Fantastic. They 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 made a joyful noise. Believe me. And uh -huh. I and if I think I could have danced up in there. Nobody would have had a problem with it. Cause they were running and jumping and falling out. I mean, I, I loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah, just the greatest singers on the planet came out of uh, those churches here in Chicago. Some of the gospel singers that I've seen and that have crossed over into the blues uh, world, are just, they're just the greatest singers. And oh yeah, when I produced that record on Lurie Bell, called uh, The Devil Ain't Got No Music. I remember the poet Sterling Plump t saying to me, and I, I actually wrote this in the liner notes, attributed it to him. He said, as long as there is a black church, there will be blues singers. <laughs> that is the truth. That's yeah. true. It's just, it's like the, it's like where they are born, you know? And it's true. It's true. I mean, it's, it's everything to me. And the weird part is I... Went to Holy Angel School starting in you know seventh seventh eighth grade I went there, and in seventh grade somebody decided that you know Catholic hymnals is very different. Somebody decided since Holy Angels was the a black school and church that we need a gospel choir, and we did. We put a uh, Mr. Smith was the uh, director. He was an eighth grade teacher. At Holy Angels, and he and with the permission of Father Clemens, Father George Clemens, he decided it was okay because that's our heritage as Black people. And boy, we had a hell of a choir, and that was the first choir I ever got in. And we kept it going for about a year, and the old people in the church they didn't like it. They were threatening to withdraw money and because. They wanted us to sing Catholic songs, Catholic hymns. And that 
other stuff we were doing was not Catholic at all. So we had to end it. We, I mean, tragically to me, it was terrible because it was my chance to be Catholic and, and also be African-American. And um, it was an interesting situation. Hmm. But we couldn't do it because, you know, the old people, that's the money. <laughs> they bring in all the money. So if you if you don't please them, then, you know, you got a problem. Hmm. But we wow, had that... to go back to, holy, holy, you know, that kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> and no more of that other stuff. <laughs> so I saw a, uh, a black preacher. I don't know. I think it was just like a random YouTube clip but he was describing the difference between how um you know white folks <laughs> interpreted certain gospel classics like amazing grace the, for example like a right like amazing grace yeah. and that it was slowed it was slowed way down and absolutely they, well yeah. it started off the way they did it and of course when we mess with it it's going to be something different exactly i mean it's, it's obvious very interesting. When I heard Barack Obama, I had to laugh. When he broke out into Amazing Grace, mm -hmm. he did it the white way at first. Mm -hmm. Amazing Grace, you know, mm -hmm. instead of the way we do it, you know. Which is? And I was just like, well, don't make me do it right now. But Come on now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look, I can't sing no more. <laughs> oh, please. So Lena McClinn, she was the niece of Thomas A. Doris, father of gospel music. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up at Kenwood High School. Um, she was at Kenwood, right? Right. Teaching. Uh-huh. Go music, ahead. Vocal music and the choir director. I transferred to Kenwood, and that was the best thing I ever did. I didn't even know what I was getting into. And I found out that I'm supposed to be in this choir with Lena McLean, and I didn't know anything. And I, it was just a blessing. I learned, and she's still alive. Mm -hmm. She's in her 90s. And she is amazing. And I learned so much from her, so much history, so much about everything, you know? So you were listening to soul and R&B, obviously, as we covered already, gospel, and you were probably listening to some rock music. What happened was mm -hmm. my family, nobody was on the same page <laughs> musically. Mm -hmm. my, grand, my maternal grandmother only listened to gospel. My maternal grandfather was a country music guy. Mm. He's a truck driver, and he was from Mississippi. And people from Mississippi listened to country and Western on the radio. And he loved it very much. And when Charlie Pride came out, he almost lost his mind. He couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> a black, uh, no, he was colored back then. A colored guy, you know, singing country and Western. But so I'm influenced by everything. My dad was the blues guy. He loved blues. So I listened to Muddy Waters. Uh, Lou Walter, oh, he loved, um, what's his name, um, Lightning Hopkins, and he loved Lowell Fosse. When I would be with my dad, that's what I listened to. When I would be with my grandfather in the truck, country and western, 
My, my grandmother, it was gospel. My mother, like, she she leaned more toward jazz. Mm-hmm. She loved Lou Rawls very much. Mm-hmm. She loved Nancy Wilson very much. So when I when my mother played music, that's what I heard. My stepmother is into salsa. So through her, that's Celia Cruz, Tito Puente, Mongo Santa Maria. I mean, you had so it all. I, I had it all. And my music, my soundtrack is Motown and Stats. And right. Chicago rhythm and blues. Because at that t- my childhood, Chicago soul was was the bomb. Right. You know, we we had Brunswick and chess records here, and it was a lot of soul going on right here. You know, we had singers living here, we had Curtis Mayfield, we had the emotions, Gene Chandler, Jerry Butler. I mean, that's <laughs> Mm, I got mm, it all. And we listened to WBON religiously. You listened to jazz singers as well through your mom's uh, musical I listened to everything. taste. Yeah. I seem to remember a story about uh, Billie Holiday. <laughs> that happened in New York City. I was visiting my mother's sister, Helen, with my mother's other sister, Doris. And I saw this album, this beautiful woman, and I said, I want to hear this. How old are you? 12. Okay. Approximately 12, 13. And my aunt said, oh, you won't like it. And I was like, how do you know? You know. And she said, you won't like it. And I said, well, I want to hear her. This woman is beautiful. It was Billie Holiday. And it was her Lady in Satin album. And as a punishment, well, since you're so smart, I'm going to make you listen to the whole thing. (laughs) 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 That was the best punishment I ever had in my life. Thank you. (laughs) And I listened to the whole thing, and I was in love with Miss Billie Holiday from then on. When you discovered Billie, you're around 12 years old. Um, mm-hmm. You go on um, to high school. You you um, are exposed to this amazing music teacher, Miss McLean. Yes. Right as you exit high school, you get involved with music on a more professional um, level. No, I was in high school. You were in the high school. The first okay, band so. I sang with, mm-hmm. I was a senior. Oh, that was my <laughs> my uncle. My he was married to my mother. In fact, he's still alive too. He's in his nineties. My uncle Nate sang with a big band, and I went to their gig in a park. I was about seven years old. So my little sassy self told him, "When you get tired of your singer, give me a call." <laughs> Can you imagine? Yes. Just just for all the listeners out there, I've known Dietra since 1987 um, quite closely, so um, I can totally see that happening. Yep, go ahead. Well, it did happen, (laughs) and that chick didn't quit the band until 10 years later. So now I'm 17, and my aunt called me, and she said, well, she finally quit. (laughs) Wow. I, I said, who? I forgot the girl's name. 
and she said her name. She said she quit the band and, and you can audition. That, well, it doesn't mean you're going to get the job, but you, you can audition. And so I auditioned me and 11 other girls and I got the job because I knew a bunch of songs because I listened to the radio religiously. And that band was called Central Power System. Central Power System, okay. And what kind of music was that that you were singing? R&B, top 40, R&B, whatever was on the radio. We did social clubs for the most part. So when you said big band earlier, you didn't you didn't mean like a... like a, a not, No, not that way. Not big band, and there were seven musicians. Right. So that was a big band to me. <laughs> so then you're, you're singing top 40 stuff with your uncle's band. Um, mm-hmm. And then what's, what's the next move? Well, I graduated from high school and I went to Luke College. I was studying music and somebody in the class heard me singing. And he goes, oh, his name was Steve Brown. He said, guitar player, he said, oh, I'm in a band. We're trying to get a record deal. Uh, you got the voice we need. I said, oh, really? And it was Jimmy Mays. It was his band called Mill Street Depot. And I sang that song, and the rest is history. So it was Mill Street Depot, 1976. Mm-hmm. And um, that was You Won't Support Me, right? Correct. And you were 18? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's interesting. You sang, you were such an old soul. You sang that song. I mean, there's a line in there about two sons, that you got two sons and three pretty little girls. <laughs> now I'm 18 years old. I don't yeah. know what the hell I'm talking about. To have five kids at 18, you would have had to start real early. <laughs> and I'm talking about child support here. Right, right. It's, it's, and I'm it's, like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, but you, Jimmy... <laughs> you own that song. You own it. Thank and then the you. high note hit that you hit on it is just amazing. Well, that was the Minnie Ripperton tip. Right. See, at that time, Minnie Ripperton was hot. And I used to laugh. I said, I could hit those, some of those notes that she hit. So I decided to throw some of that into the song. And that's what drove everybody crazy. You say you love you won't support me you know that's the one I need you say you love me yeah but you won't I you refuse I you refuse you refuse you say you love me Those were the soulful vocal stylings of Dietra Farr at 18 years old in 1976, singing with the group Mill Street Depot. The song was You Won't Support Me. Now, that was produced by Jimmy Mays and... Sylvia Robinson heard the demo tape and went crazy. Wow. 
Sylvie Robinson of the Mickey and Sylvia fame, right, right. of the Pillow Talk fame. She she waxed that that demo tape and put it out there. Yeah, and she called me later, and and um, it's, it's a long story, but anyway. No, she called you later, and what? I want to hear it. Oh, I had left the group because Jimmy wanted me to straighten my hair. <laughs> and what he did, because he thought, you know, I looked too militant. You know, I looked like Angela Davis, you know. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm not, you know, no man is going to tell me to straighten my hair. So I'm still not, my hair's still not straight. But anyway, um, I left the group. And in the meantime, Sylvia found out all the little unsavory details. But anyway, she called me and told me that I had a, a very unusual voice. And she loved it and she wanted to do an album on me. And it didn't happen, but whatever. You have a very interesting project coming up that we'll talk about in relation to this. But I just want to continue with the chronology of this first, but I'm going to get back to the hair in a minute. Okay. By the way, you won't support me um, reach the mm -hmm. Cashbox Top 100 R&B hits in 76. And that's right. uh, pretty good for your first recording. <laughs> yeah. How did you end up sort of getting into your father's world of music, which is uh, deep Chicago blues? Well, I always loved it. But I was working at the University of Chicago in one of the dormitories. I was attending college myself, but not there. I was a Chicago State then. Phil Guy came to the dormitory to perform for the students. And somebody, I don't remember who it was, came to my desk. I was a desk clerk. He said, D, I bet you won't go up there and sing with that band. Hmm. And I was like, you know I can't stand a day, right? I said, I bet I could. I bet I will. Now, this kid did not know I was a singer. He had no idea. So I, I told the switchboard operator, that shows you how old this was. We had a switchboard operator. Okay. I told her to watch my desk. And I went over and Phil took a break. And I said, can I sing a song with you guys? <laughs> he said, sure. So when they went back on stage, I got up there and sang Still Away. And the kids went berserk. I bet. Because they, you know, nobody knew anything about me other than I was desk clerk. And I was young. And, and Phil Guy being, for those of you who don't know who Phil Guy is, Phil Guy is the younger brother of Buddy Guy, uh, who uh, was a uh, really, really fabulous guitar player and singer and deep blues guy who was a great rhythm player. A lot of Buddy Guy's greatest recordings uh, have um, Phil Guy playing rhythm behind him. And um, he was a wonderful uh, figure on the Chicago blues scene for all of us younger players. He was super encouraging and really, really a beautiful person. Yes. The irony is I was just old enough to go in those clubs, you know, where blues was played. So Phil came over and he said, oh, I like the way you sing. You should come around where I'm playing. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, okay. So Phil used to play the checkerboard and Teresa. Luckily, I was old enough to go in those clubs 
And some of the grad students got together with me and we started going to the clubs, Teresa's and the checkerboard. And Phil would call me up to sit in, you know. And then I started going up north to uh, Diddy Mulligan's. I remember seeing Junior and Buddy, Buddy Guy, Junior Wells at Diddy's. And I remember seeing Mighty Joe Young at the Wise Foods. And this was around the time of the Blues Brothers movie, which a lot of my friends were in that movie. So it started to, I was like, well, maybe this is something I need to look into, you know, singing blues. Because mm-hmm. it never occurred mm-hmm. to me. I've always been considered myself a soul singer. Mm-hmm. So that's how that started because of it. I gave him, he kicked the yeah. door over to me. Not long after that, then you uh, you put your own band together. I graduated from college, and the same month that I finished college, I went to see Muddy Waters at the South Shore Country Club on my twenty fourth birthday. And I said, you know, I'm gonna do. I'm going because you know after you finish college, you go to okay. Now what? What am I supposed to be doing? And I graduated from Columbia College with my degree in journalism. And I decided I'm going to sing blues. And all the blues clubs, well, not all of them, but a lot of them were on the, on the north side. So I decided to change my life completely and leave Hyde Park and move to the north side. And I started hanging out in clubs, Kingston Mines, blues. Wise, I went everywhere, you know. And so this is like 19... I left uh, Hyde Park, 82. 82, okay, so two and years... And then I was thinking ago. of my... Yeah, so I was thinking of my... I graduated college in 81. Right. So I was thinking yeah. to myself, Dad, you know what? I What I really need is a piano player to help me make this shift, you know? Because I'm one of these people that likes to be prepared. And I got that from Lena McLean. She's like drill that into our head to be prepared. So I don't want to go sit in with people and don't know what I'm doing, don't know what key I'm singing. You know, I didn't want to deal with that. This is a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. So the Chicago Reader, that newspaper, they did an article on Earl Helson. And I thought, he's a nice guy. I could, you know, I can read him. He's, he seemed like such a nice guy. Erwin Helfer? Yeah. Yeah. I said, maybe... I can pay him to practice with me, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I looked him up in the phone book. Remember phone books? Yeah, man, I remember those. Pages, <laughs> the white pages. <laughs> I looked him up, called him, and told him what I was trying to do. And he said, sure, come on over. So I went over. And I went over for a year. <laughs> Every week, I would go to his house. And so you go to his house, he got you rehearsing all of the... All the songs that I wanted to do, I would just bring him... Figure out what keys, yeah. Yeah, we went through all of that, and I went to all of his gigs, every one of them. Every gig he had, I I was there. And so then you put your own band together? A friend of mine worked at an answering service. This girl, Frida, called me, and she said, I got a client that loves blues. Can I give him your phone number? And it was Steve Kirkhoff. And he called me. And we met up. 
And I told him I wanted to get a gig somewhere. I, and Steve said, well, I know the owner of the Kingston Mines. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I'll see what I can do. He went and told Doc Pellegrino that I was the greatest singer in the world. <laughs> Not ever having heard me. Never heard me sing, you know, that <laughs> just lie. <laughs> and Doc gave, told me to come in. And I sat in with somebody's band. I think it was Chico Chisholm. But anyway, I went up and sang, and Doc hired me. So that was my first blues gig. And the first gig I did was with John Walker's band, Christmas Day, 1983. When you got a residency there and you were working weekly, what mm-hmm. what was the setup? What were the hours? How how long did you work? What was Ooh, the Lord deal? Mercy. And how much did you get paid? If you don't mind me asking, I'll tell you. I'll be glad to tell you. Yeah, uh, it's called paying dues. Mm. I worked from nine thirty till five. Well, they close at five in the morning. No, four in the morning during the week. So you might as well say nine thirty to three thirty in the morning. We used to do five sets. Now, remind you, I didn't know five set worth of songs. That was, that was ridiculous. And it was it was hard. Five one-hour sets? Yes. So about 1.30, when the other clubs were closed, all the musicians would come into the mines because they stayed open later. And I'd call them up. Soon they'd walk in the door, come on up. <laughs> Lefty Dan's in the house, everybody. Come on up. Because almost everybody... Wanted to sit in. So I used that to my advantage. I, they had to help me out. Well, that was the whole culture at that club. You know, after hours, fun, you know, people, people would come in and, um, and, and and spell the people that were getting exhausted from these ridiculous hours. Luckily, it was uh, it's a blues tradition to bring your colleagues and friends up mm. on stage with you and oh, jam, fun. And jam with fun. them. Oh, yeah. It was a great they time. Saved my, they saved me because I, I didn't. You know, I was prepared to do recess, but <laughs> five. Yeah, so. And so then you got a residency after that, I think in like 80, 80 well, when at Blue Chicago. Oh, that happened later. That was, uh, whew, what year was that? 85? I think it was 80. Yeah, 85. 85? Okay. Yeah, I started working in Blue Chicago. And then I took a break to have my son, who was born in 86. And then I went back when he was about a year old. I went back. Mm, and eight, I met you around, when did I meet you? 89? No, 80, 87. 87, okay. Yeah, you hired me in 87. Without even seeing you. <laughs> you still are the only person, the only musician I ever hired that I never heard before, but that I heard about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody, I said, I'm looking for a harmonica player. Your name came up four or five times. Wow. Because the first time they said, I said, I don't know him. i just gotten down to Chicago. I just moved there. I can't tell. <laughs> well, you know, I've been coming down to Chicago for since the early 80s. So mm-hmm. um, p- people knew me, and I was bringing people up to um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I came up. Mm-hmm. Um and so I had I had produced and promoted shows with blues people from Chicago since about 83, 84. But I had right. been going down to the checkerboard since like 81. And I had 
also met a lot of blues people up in Madison, Wisconsin in 80 and 81. And that's where I met, you know, Dave and Lewis Myers from the Aces. And I met Sonny Lance Slim and first sat in with uh, Magic Slim and the Teardrops. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that's interesting about this whole period of time in relation to you and to women singers is that starting in maybe the mid-70s and then really ramping up, um, there was almost a renaissance of women singers. Um, There, you know, Chicago blues from the late 30s on through the golden era of Chicago blues, which, you know, you can say is maybe 1952 to 58 or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But then through the 60s, it was, you know, really happening and evolving and developing. And the whole scene was extremely male-dominated. And right. I mean, you had Coco Taylor and Mama Yancey. And I'm sure that there were local singers, you know, not, and I'm not hip to who they were back in the day. But right. once you start getting into the late 70s and early 80s, you know, of course, Coco was still around. You still had Coco Taylor. Uh, but you right. had people like Queen Sylvia Embry, who was a, a yeah. gu- guitar and bass player and singer. You know, Zora, right. Zora Young was probably the first um, woman blues singer I ever met. Um, she was mm-hmm. playing with Sunnyland, Slim, uh, Big Time Sarah, Valerie Wellington, Bonnie Lee, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, Gloria Hardiman. A little later, yep. Chick, Chick Rogers came in, Barbara LaShore. Of course, you had a bunch of us, man. Karen Ka- Carroll, Kanika Crest, right. Catherine yeah. Davis, Lavelle yeah. White. She was living in Chicago. Pat Soul, right. Mary Lane. She wasn't on the north side yet, but she was still singing on the south side. Um, west side. I mean, West Side, yep. And Nora Jean, um, later known yep, as Nora yep, Jean Russo. Um, yeah, she was there too. Oh, man, it was so many of us. Pat Scott. Yep. And Nellie you Travis. Remember, you remember Angela Brown? Of course. And so how was it um, being a young woman coming into the blue scene on the north side by yourself? Yeah, I was a new girl on the block. I came in right after Valerie. And it made it kind of hard because Valerie was hot. But I I hung in there and then one day Sam Lake came in to the mines mm-hmm. with the uh, legendary blues band. And he sent Melvin Taylor to me and he said, tell that girl come over here. <laughs> mm. So I went over and talked to him and he said, I sure wish you come sing with my band, cause you. I like the way you sing. You sing blues like a a real. You know, he was just bragging on me and everything, and I was like, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> so Sam took me on the road, and uh, oh boy, that was something else. So Sam Lay took you on the road in 1984. Went to Canada. He had a preponderantly white band back then. Most of the guys yes. in the band were these young, white, aspiring blues players. What was what, yes. what was that like? They played well. They just didn't treat me very well. Uh, Barkin Bill was a singer in the band at that time, and myself. Mm-hmm. You know, Barkin Bill and I had a lot of fun together. The band treated me pretty bad. How was that? Um, well, 
know, they didn't like the way I would sing my songs, you know, the keys I would sing the songs in. They attacked me for that because they felt like, you know, the song, whatever I do, I'm supposed to sound exactly like the record. And I can't do that. Well, of course not. I mean, most of those songs are, are sung by men, first of all. 99, I, I don't even think I sang any women's songs at that time. Right. I was doing a lot of Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters, uh, Lil Walter especially, my favorite. So they were upset and when you'd call a Jimmy Reed tune off and it wasn't in A or E. Exactly. Because they couldn't keep that E string um, ringing out, and and they felt and Sam would be looking in the rearview mirror like I don't believe these cats. They, I mean, they were just ridiculous. They treated me so bad. So they were um, telling you that you didn't un understand the music, basically. Right. They didn't know that I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm doing everything wrong, and I'm just like, oh Jesus. Well, you know, honestly, when you hired me in 87, one of the things that I absolutely loved about the gig was that you had all of these incredibly personal interpretations of these songs that I'd been playing already, um, even at 25 years old, I'd been playing them for years. And you had a whole different way of phrasing them. Your timing was completely different and the keys were different. And so I had to come up with new stuff for this old, you know, I mean, if you had done it just like Jimmy Reed or just like Walter, I would have probably just recited those solos that I had learned as a student. But I was forced to dig in to myself and support your story. Yeah. That's why all the old guys loved you so much is because you you sounded totally deep and yeah. you have this gorgeous um, instrument but you did, you were not doing what so many of the young folks were doing back then, which was to photocopy somebody else's story. And I don't know how to do that. Yeah, well, that's a blessing. I don't know how to copy somebody else's style. When I heard Little Walter sing Mean Old World, my first reaction was, I got to slow this shit down. Right, <laughs> right. Because I don't hear it that way. Yep. There's a mean old world. I, live, I can't sing it like that. Right, right. I, I couldn't even, when I heard it, I'm slowing it down. And it's so interesting. A, a lot of people would call that tune off as a slow blues. And then, but it was really what we used to call um, an old man shuffle. Old man shuffle. Yeah. Right. So that it was in between. I don't know anybody that did it from slow except me, but anyway. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, but people would set, call it a slow blues and then count it off at the tempo that Walter did it, which is not slow, you know? <laughs> so it was. Right. It, and, and, and like you say, I do it Ray Charles slow. Right. You do it Ray Charles slow. That's right. I mean, when I say slow, I mean slow. Take your time, son. Take, your, take time. your time. Take your time. You mentioned earlier that you were fired from one of your first bands for not straightening your hair. And now you're involved in a book about hair. And I was wondering, uh, when did you go natural? You've had a natural since I met yeah, you. Yeah, my mother, my aunts, myself, we went natural when I was about the age of 12. Okay. And I kept my hair that, and I had a brief period in high school where I straightened it and 
uh, dyed it red. You know how teenagers are. They want to do something scandalous. So I did something scandalous. But that didn't last very long. I went back natural. And I've been pretty nat- natural, you know, since, so, you know, forever. You were contacted recently by some writers. Mm-hmm. In England. From England. So talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're doing a book on black hair. Mm-hmm. And they asked for my contribution to that. Black women's hair, specifically, right? Black women, right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I was chosen. I guess they saw my some pictures or something. But it was really um, shocking, you know. But then I stopped thinking about it. I said, you know, this is a, a real thing with Black women. And I start thinking how much trouble I've had in my life because of my hair being natural. But you know, Black women are the only women on the planet who come into the world with somebody changing their hair. Nobody, Hmm. nobody, you know, Black boys Hmm. get have their hair, which is the same as ours. And when I say that, I'm referring to coarse hair. Because mm-hmm. everybody's hair is not the same, but mm-hmm. your your everyday black people's hair is usually coarse. Mm-hmm. And the boys are allowed to have to keep their hair the way it is. And the girls, once they get out of babyhood, immediately their hair is straight, usually. Mm. And I start thinking, what does that do? to a child, to a young lady, young girl. The first message is something is wrong with you. Mm. And I never thought about it mm-hmm. <laughs> until they came, because that, that when they asked me to be a part of the book, I did a little soul searching at, about that because it's always been an issue with me. Uh, my grandmother, <laughs> My maternal grandmother, she talked about good hair and bad hair. Mm. And I, I didn't understand. And other, well, actually, both of my grandmothers did because they grew up in that era where black hair was considered bad hair. And I never understood it. Why is black hair considered bad? The boys have hair that's natural. They only change their hair as an adult if they choose to. Mm-hmm. But if they don't choose to, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know? And the girls, no. No. They're not. Their hair, something wrong with your hair, it's nappy. You gotta change it. Every, almost every black girl in the world has to put up with that. And then there was this um, label or stamp of militancy that was affixed to anybody that sported a, you know, as you referenced Angela Davis. I'm militant because I'm wearing my hair the way God gave, you know, God gave me my hair. So how did it get to be wrong? Why did it get to be bad? You know, I never understood that kind of thing, you know, but all of us, and, and it made me really think these women that approach me about this book are not even in America. They're in England, UK, London, or something. Mm-hmm. And they have the same issue. Right. So it's a worldwide problem. 
Yeah, as is uh, racism and white supremacy in general. Uh, but black women are the only people on the planet that have to change their hair mm -hmm. because whatever God gave them, there's something wrong with it. And so what's the name of this book? Hairvolution. When is it due out? August 10th, 2021. Hairvolution. Her hair, her story, are his black women from all over the planet are, going, are telling their story about what they've experienced as black women concerning their hair. You wrote copy for this? Yes, I, I did an essay, I answered questions. I mean, basically I'm telling my story. And one of the stories that I told my mother when she passed in 72, she had natural hair my grandmother <laughs> told the funeral home to straighten it. Mm. Oh my God, was I pissed off. Why? And her answer, but she looked better with straight hair. So she had her hair straightened posthumously by her mom. Yes, yes, she did. Wow, that is I deep. was so pissed off. I think, you know, I just, and people were like, uh, you know, when people die, they always say, that looks just like uh, what, or whatever. They they did a good job with, uh, the, you know, how they yep. critique the, the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And so many people said, that don't even look like her. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I know. It's the hair. Mm -hmm. You used to seeing her hair a certain way. Now it's not like that. Wow. So even the photo on the obituary, she made me find a picture of her with straight hair. Wow. I could. I was just like, oh, my God. You are such a versatile, eclectic artist that transverses so many um, different genres and disciplines. And um, we know that you were a writer. You have a degree, as you mentioned, from Columbia uh, College mm -hmm. um, in journalism. Mm -hmm. So for the last, what is it, maybe 13 or 14 years now, you've been doing a column in Living Blues magazine. The 16th year now. 16th year, damn. I know, I'm, it's crazy. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Living Blues magazine is probably the most respected periodical in the blues industry. For the last 50 years. Yeah, for the last 50 years. This is um, a, a column called Artist to Artist. How's, what, what's that been like? You're, you're able to reach out and have really cool discussions with a lot of different kinds of blues artists. Yeah, it's been fun. You know, I started off interviewing people that I knew. You know, because I started the column before we I was on Facebook or any kind of social media. So naturally, you go toward people that you already know. And then once I got on social media, Facebook has been very instrumental in me choosing to interview all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And because before, you know, I didn't have a way to contact some of these people. Now it's easy. It's wonderful. I'm glad to do it. You know, it, it's one of the highlights of my life is to keep that column going and get to hear everybody's story. One of the problems is people talk too long. I only have one page. Yeah, it's a pretty okay. short. It's a pretty short spot that you've got, but you really work it and you take advantage of your perspective as an artist talking to other artists, as a black person talking to other black people. 
there is an intimacy and a warmth and reciprocity between you and the interviewee that is mm-hmm. very, very rare, especially in, in blues music publications. Yeah. Yeah. I think they open up to me mm-hmm. in a way that they don't open up to other journalists because yeah. they see me as being one of us. Now, so much has changed in performance since you started. I mean, you've been doing this since you were basically a kid. Mm-hmm. And even before COVID, uh, in this age of zero attention spans and live streaming, <laughs> they're live streaming the, uh, the the sandwich they're making before they eat it. You know, I mean, it's it's Woo! everybody's documenting everything and kind of losing focus on... Um, on the moment, uh, good or bad, how have you navigated this as a performer and how has it affected you in contrast to the way things were 20, 25 years ago? I don't know if I'll ever get used to people coming out to see a show and as soon as the artist comes on stage, everybody pulls their phone out. That is so ignorant to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just stay home? You know, because, well, you know, to me, part of going out is to get caught up in the moment, get caught up in the music. And you really can't do that very well if you're focused on filming what's going on. And I, I'm profoundly affected by it to the point that I don't want to perform anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, in 2019, I went to see, um, Al Green in May and Diana Ross in July. And they both were at the Chicago Theater. And this was so exciting to me because I hadn't seen either one of them in 40 years, you know, over 40 years. And they announced before they came out on both shows, not to pull your phones out and all that stuff. And of course, when they came out, everybody just ignored what was just told to them. And I looked around all the way up to the balcony and everybody had their phones out. And I I wanted to cry. Mm. I'm like, you guys are missing this moment. Mm. You're missing it. (laughs) You know, how can you see Al Green and Don Rob? These are icons and you are missing everything because you got your phone out and you're so busy trying to capture what's happening instead of getting into it. And I don't know, everybody don't feel that way. Some people don't seem to be bothered by it, and that's why people keep doing it. It's distracting. Yes, it is. Takes you right out of yourself. I'm trying to sing, and I'm trying to connect with you, the audience. I'm trying to connect. I'm connecting with a cell phone? There's another project that you're involved with right now that is fascinating, which is... The Mojo Museum. You're you're on the board of directors of the Mojo Museum, which is the house that was the first house that Muddy Waters bought when he moved to Chicago. And his great-granddaughter is the owner of it and is uh, created a project around the restoration of it. Yes, Chandra Cooper at Davenport. She is Muddy's great-granddaughter, and she decided years ago when the family wanted to sell that house, she decided, um, no, I don't. it shouldn't be anywhere outside of this family. So she said, if you're going to sell it, sell it to me. 
So that's how she ended up with the house. And for years, she's owned it and didn't know what to do with it. So when people don't know what to do, they don't do anything. So she, you know, did the best she could. And she hooked up with me and Barry Dolan's and, you know, Kenny Smith. And we got together and we started talking. And now we're working hard on raising the funds. So Barry Dolan's to- being the uh, guy who booked the Chicago Blues Festival for over 25 years. Um, yeah. And then Kenny B.D.I. Smith, who yes. lived in that house as a child. Kenny B.D.I. Smith is a, a great blues drummer whose father was Muddy Waters drummer Willie Big Eye Smith. And right. did Chandra live in that? She was born there. She was born there. So, okay, so... That was her first home. That was her first home. So you've got two people. You actually... And then you said Paul Osher. Now, Paul Osher was... Paul Osher lived in the house, in the basement, with... Um, Otis Spann. Otis, Otis Spann. Yeah. They shared the basement. And he played in Muddy's band. And so the, we are the board. So you have three people on the board. You have um, Paul Osher, who was the first white blues player that Muddy Waters ever hired. He's a harmonica player. Uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist, but he played harmonica with Muddy. And um, he lived in the basement with Otis Spann, the probably greatest yes. blues piano player in the history of the that's, that's right. instrument. Yeah. Kenny Smith, yourself. And Chandra's mom. And Chandra's mom. lived in the house. She's, she was raised by Muddy. You okay. know, you see some of the pictures sometimes, and you'll see this little girl with Muddy. That's he, Muddy raised her, Chandra's mom. So okay. we're, we're the board, and, you know, I'm so excited. Uh, this is something that has bothered me for years and years. Muddy's house should be a museum. It should be a shrine. Right. I mean, people come to Chicago. Landmark, yeah. That's one thing that bothers me about Chicago. We have all this great music history, and we don't have anything much to show for it. Right. You know, everything's been torn down. Chicago's notorious for tearing things down. We have basically the Chess Records building, 2120 South Michigan, which was owned by uh, Marie Dixon, Willie Dixon's widow. And then we have Buddy's house, 4339 South Lake Park. I mean, this is our history right there. And everything else is gone. Right. All the old right. clubs, you know, Teresa's, the building is still there, but Teresa's is gone. The checkerboard is gone. Everything's torn down. And this is all we have. And nothing was so, built up either. I mean, there was no, there's no, been no, no blues museum of any kind in. And I don't understand blues that, mecca. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And so when people come here, you know, like for tourism, they want to see something, and we haven't had anything for them to see except, you know, like I said, the Chess Records building, which is now Blues Heaven, right. and that's it. We should have statues all over Chicago, right? Of right. Mahalia Jackson, Sam Cooke. Right. Uh, Muddy uh, Waters. Uh, yeah. Buddy Waters, Howlin' Wood, Little Walter, yeah. Coco Taylor. Yeah. Well, I've been saying for years when, you know, I go overseas, I hear pe- you know, people say, where are you from? Chicago. Oh, there's two things they reference. One is Al Capone and the other oh. is the blues. It's not the John exactly. Hancock building. It's not no. Wrigley Field. It's the blues. And... Talk about missing the boat. You know what makes me mad? The tourism that comes to this town for the blues. And the people here 
have not honored this, this music. I, I just do not understand. Yeah, you know, no, no. I, I don't understand. I mean, if they not, I could understand that they weren't making some money off of it. You think all the hotels in Chicago and stores and everything don't benefit? They sure do. With the shift of consciousness about race and race relations, with the Black Lives Matter movement really becoming a international phenomenon off of recent events from Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, um, on and on and on. There's dozens to reference. Mm -hmm. We're now seeing within the blues genre a whole new conversation emerging that me and you have been having for 30, <laughs> 30 years um, and that mm. I've always been sort of interested in on a personal level, um, intellectually and spiritually, that, you know, what is the relationship of non-African-American blues practitioners or artists, you know, to this music and... How are we supposed to react to the very transparent and obvious appropriation that is taking place uh, in blues music that has been taking place for a long time and that is part of a tradition of the appropriation of black music, especially in uh, the United States, uh, be it blues or jazz or um, rock and roll. The list goes on. I mean, every one of these genres is rooted deeply in blues music. And we see in the contemporary blues industry, this appropriation, this exclusion of black artists from festivals and clubs. And so there's this whole conversation going on now on social media and other platform shows like this, for instance, where people are starting to really talk about it and have the hard conversations. Yeah. How do you feel about all of that? Okay, well, first of all, let me say this. I never experienced racism that I knew of until I started singing blues. Um, and it's because of where I come from. I was raised in the Black community, Inglewood, Southside, and I, was, I lived across the street from the police station. So I grew up not being scared of white people. I was not scared of the police either because I lived with them, basically. What used to happen in Chicago is when a black family would move into a block, all the white people would move. So, <laughs> and Mahalia Jackson is the reason why Chatham is, is black because she moved over there. She thought because she was on the Ed Sullivan show that white people liked her. Well, she found out they didn't want to live next door to her. Mm -hmm. So she moved to 83rd in Indiana and the whole neighborhood moved out, the white people did. So after I moved from all of that and moved to Hyde Park as an early adult, I, Hyde Park has always been integrated, very, you know, liberal community. So I was in shock when I moved to the North side and got into the blues community, and I saw all these white people who love this music, but you can feel that they don't love us. And mm. I say us, I mean mm. black people. Mm -hmm. You can feel the racism mm. all the time. You can feel it from the club owners. I lost my gig at the Kingston Mines 
with my first gig as a blues singer. I lost the gig because I had a white musician in my band. Oh, actually, I had two. And I was told to get rid of one of them because he was white. I had too many white people in the band. Because at that time, the audiences that would come to Chicago expected to see black musicians playing the blues. Well, since we were only making $38 to $40 to play those five sets, I was hiring good musicians. I don't care what color they were. If they, as long as they were good musicians willing to work for $38 or $40, I hired them. And then you watch things change over the years where white people were not that accepted as blues people. And once they find out, once the people decide, the club owners or festivals or whatever, when it got to the place, they realized the audience will accept white musicians. Oh boy, did everything change. Now we're looking at festivals where they don't have any black people. It's almost like, oh, we can take this music and and and, and we can make it white now. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 what's going on. Right. Lots of festivals don't have any black people, yeah. or they might have a token, token black person. I I would have I could make more money if I was a white woman. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. something that I could not have foreseen when I came into the blues scene. If you had told me in 1984. Mm-hmm. that this would be the case. I would have told you, you are nuts. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's something that um, has repeated itself throughout history and other genres as well. And um, so we see it um, really uh, taking hold in blues for the last uh at least 25 years it's been moving in mm-hmm. that in that direction i think that uh, a lot of hard conversations are happening a lot of myths are being dispelled like black people abandoned blues so we picked it up um, which is the biggest bunch of bullshit that i've it's i've exactly, ever heard we know uh, better than <laughs> we know we know better than that and not only that but there's a renaissance of young um mm-hmm. sort of traditionalists that are coming out of the south that are, I love you know from like like 21 years old to 30 years old who are like love, deep yes. deep blues guys and i'm talking about uh kingfish ingram i'm talking about marquise knox jontavius willis um yes uh, and yeah. i talked to all those young men andrew and ali it, it just yes yes mm-hmm. i love it you know i'm like where y'all been you know i'm so happy to see this and you know, black people, you know, we're we're innovators. We're not going to keep things the way they were. Exactly. We're going to change this. It's yeah. going to always be like that. Lil Walter, everybody brag about Lil Walter being a genius, which he is, was, you know. But he didn't play the way he was heard somebody else play. He played his way. Right. You know, and that's an artist. An artist is not somebody that that sticks to what he somebody else did, right? You know, and that's what when I was being attacked by Sam's know it all musicians, right? They didn't understand that, you know. They were traditionalists. So you're kind know? of talking about you know black music aesthetic being a 
impulse towards innovation and pushing the envelope and, and creating change. And, and if that's the case, then being an archivist and being somebody who is just sort of preserving the traditions is in itself untraditional. You know, once Muddy um, completely changed the sound of blues music coming mm-hmm. coming out of uh, Robert Johnson's son house. Um, right. Once he completely changed it, then he became militant and set in his ways artistically. But it was his music. It was his whole canon that he had created. um, And that's how he insisted on people playing his music. But when he was developing it, he was pushing the envelope. And it seems to me that... You know, you don't go from Muddy to Buddy Guy and uh, Otis Rush and Magic Sam and then up to, um, you know, some of the other blues players that emerged in the um, early 60s into the, you know, early 70s um, and end up with Stevie Ray Vaughan, the fabulous Thunderbirds. Uh, You end up going from you know, Muddy to Buddy and Magic Sam to, I don't know, maybe a Sly Stone, you know, and then to Prince. And and I'm not trying to render genre meaningless, but it seems to me in what you're saying that there is a continuation of the blues spirit and the blues creativity in in all of black music. And that to sort of say that... The, that black folks abandon their own music <laughs> is to not understand the process of musical evolution yeah. in a black American culture. Well, I'm excited about what these young people are going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm intrigued. I love that they call me and talk to me and pick my brain. And they're always to something, always scheming, always getting together, you know, they're not competing with with each other, they're brothers. And I'm excited about the whole thing. I, I love keeping young people around me. You know, I you know, I worked in Chicago Public School for my son's entire childhood. And I just love seeing what young people are gonna do. And they're super polite and gentlemanly um guys. Um at the same time they're taking no shit from anybody. And they are talking yeah. they are telling the truth. They are yes, as they are. people like to say these days, speaking truth to power, you know, and That's right. and they're That's right. very, very equipped to do so. And it's really amazing to see this uh Yeah, I've I've never seen anything like it. I mean I, I so admire those guys, you know. Well, listen, Dietra, this has been so beautiful. This is my inaugural uh, interview. Had to be with my big sis, and I really Thank appreciate you. I really appreciate you doing it. Thank you. Um, you know, well, um, I enjoyed it too. Yeah, of course, we always talk, and it's good to talk. You know, it is, and what's, what's happening. And again, you know, there's so much more to talk about that we'll do it. We'll do it again for sure. Um, really um, fascinated with some of these projects that you're involved with right now, and we'll keep everybody up to date on the Mojo Museum. We'll announce when um, Hairvolution comes out, and check out the next issue of Artist to Artist uh, in Living Blues. And we'll talk to you soon. Mama Thank D. You. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Scope. <laughs> brother Scope and Mama D, what a mess. <laughs> yep. Crazy. All right, brother. Talk All to right. you later. Bye.
Well, that was the great Dietra Farr coming to you from her apartment in Chicago, Illinois. I hope you enjoyed the interview. My name is Matthew Scholar. I'm the host of Blues and World Report. Tune in next week when we have a special edition of Blues and World Report, an interview with 25-year-old acoustic country blues phenom John Tavius Willis, who will be performing at the Logan Center Blues Fest at the Logan Center for the Arts on the campus of the University of Chicago. Blues and World Report is solely a listener-supported program. If you enjoyed the show and want the podcast to continue, please consider donating at bluesworldreport.com. That's B-L-U-E-S. W-O-R-L-D-R-E-P-O-R-T dot com and click the donation link. We'd like to thank you once again and we'll see you next week. <laughs>